Hi everybody, welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. It's brought to you by Brian, which is me, and Dan. Hey Brian. Hi Dan, it's good to be talking to you again. Definitely, excited to be back. This is Halloween season, and so our bill of fare today features a fitting series. We're departing from our film-only rule that has endured for the, the first five episodes. We are focusing on a mini-series this time around. It is Over the Garden Wall from 2014. Did you get a chance to check it out? I did, yeah. And I'll point out, it's a mini-series, but at 10 episodes, at just over 10 minutes apiece, it really comes out to about the length of a feature film. So I think it still kind of fits with the overall scope of our project. I thought so, too. It wasn't too big of an ask, especially when my last pitch was two feature films. That's true. It's probably less overall screen time than that. I mean, it certainly is. So this miniseries originally aired over five nights. It was the first week of November in 2014, so right after Halloween. But as we get into our discussion, you'll see it has quite a few thematic elements relevant to Halloween. Seemed like a good pick as we head into the thick of October now. Definitely agree. This is highly autumnal viewing, and it also has plenty of spooky undercurrents. Combine those, and you definitely get Halloween viewing. So the main cast in this, I guess we'll call it a show. So It's on the short side, but that's the, the quickest shorthand. Is It's a TV show. And it stars Elijah Wood as the older of a pair of brothers. His name is Wart. And Colin Dean is Greg, the younger brother. And for most of their journey, they are joined by a talking bluebird named Beatrice. And she was voiced by Melanie Linsky. We also get an assortment of guest stars in some creepy roles, including Christopher Lloyd, John Cleese, and Tim Curry who are all turn in memorable performances. Yeah, I was surprised they got such big star power for a miniseries. Yeah, Elijah Wood is especially captivating as well. Get into, he does a good job, I thought. Yeah, that was going to be one of my overall strengths of this series, is the voice acting in general is excellent, but I think Elijah Wood is the standout for sure. Yeah. So we'll make our value judgments later on, but I, I think it's interesting to note just how universal the critical praise for this series has been. It's got a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, and among Google users, it says 97%. So this has received some pretty glowing reviews, apart from what we'll be saying here today. I think there is space, actually, to be a little more critical than that. I don't know if I would necessarily give it a 91%, but we will we will see. Yeah, somehow this one had slipped under the radar for me, which is very odd because right around, I guess it was a couple years before 2014, I went through a pretty big animation phase. I was trying to watch a bunch of the classic shows and classic films, learn about famous animators and different styles, and this must have just been a year or two after that had really faded for me because I 
I don't know if I'd ever heard of this show. And I'm kind of surprised because a lot of the stuff it does is right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I was wondering about that. How many of the recent animated series you've kept up with? So the past decade, I'm not quite as strong. In fact, I have seen very few of the shows from the last decade. My brother, Will, convinced me to watch Adventure Time. And a couple people have been uh, trying to get me to watch Gravity Falls. Uh, I think you as well. And I've seen some of the comedies, but not too comprehensive on the TV end. The film end, I've seen a little bit more of it. Oh, yeah. Easier to keep up with features than TV shows. That's that's why if you happen to read Earn This, uh, our blog that we collaborate on, that I was writing a series on different TV shows that I enjoy, and it, it kind of trailed off a long time ago because watching a whole TV show... If it's more than a 10-episode miniseries, it can take a while. Definitely, and it's also hard to like extract universal opinions across hours and hours of filmed entertainment as opposed to you know 90 to 120 minutes. That's a good point. Although it's, it's definitely changed now that streaming exists and you can binge a whole show. I mean, I think back to the days when you had to wait a week between episodes... And, and, you know, during like a whole summer, no episodes at all. So you would spend years with these characters and not just watch a whole show over like a couple weekends. I definitely agree. It's changed the way that we emotionally connect with TV shows. I absolutely agree. Let's say you have a, a comedy, okay? And it's, let's say, 20 episodes. I mean, you could watch 20 episodes in three nights, you know, Having a relationship with a character for three nights, even if it's three really memorable nights, is very different than watching Jim and Pam grow from 2003 to 2010 or whatever it was when I was watching The Office. I mean, this is another example. Five, ten episodes in five nights, even though even if all ten of these episodes are really great, the way that you interact with it really does come closer to film, traditional feature film than it does a long-running TV show. It's kind of like we've entered in some sort of hybrid of the classic TV show as an ongoing episodic event and the film as here is your story consumed in one sitting and one blast, you know? Yeah, definitely. It certainly feels like a passion project driven by an auteur's vision of what it should be. It's like a little window into somebody's mind. Oh yeah, agreed, for sure. And that auteur in question for Over the Garden Wall was a guy named Patrick McHale. He originally envisioned the series in 2004 as a student at CalArts, which I'm sure Dan is familiar that CalArts is sort of the home of a lot of Disney luminaries, basically the whole Pixar team. It's like if you if you want to be on the ins in Disney specifically, but like kind of the whole animation community, you go to CalArts. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the place. It's like legendary as the place where these legends are born, where these geniuses come together, get their craft, get their spark. I mean, Pixar films for years were famous for having little inside jokes about CalArts. There's one number I forget what it is that I don't know if it's appeared in every Pixar film. It's almost every Pixar film, but it was the room number for 
one of the animation classrooms that a bunch of the animators went to. I believe it's A113. Yeah, it's like um, Andy's mother's license plate. And I think it appears in the Cars film as a significant number. So, yes, it's definitely like the Illuminati of animators. Everybody goes to CalArts. But anyway, he thought this up back in 2004 uh, before heading into the industry with a new crop of these animators. And if you take a look at the projects that he's worked on, it's clear to see his influence throughout or just how the things he worked on led to Over the Garden Wall. Because Patrick McHale started as an artist and writer on The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. Have you ever seen that show, Dan? No, I've heard good things about it, but I've never seen it. I've only seen bits and pieces, but my takeaway at the time and still now is that it was like they took SpongeBob and they thought, we want to make SpongeBob, but instead of sea creatures, they're people, and we want to make it creepier. Okay. It's like everything is kind of influenced by old-timey nautical art styles, and there's just these off-putting macabre elements that sneak in. Interesting. And then Patrick McHale moved on to be sort of a co-developer alongside Pendleton Ward of Adventure Time, where he served as a creative director for the first five seasons. So like both of these shows, Flapjack and Adventure Time, Over the Garden Wall has a simplistic character animation style, but much more elaborate background art. It seems like the focus is on developing an eye-catching environment. Yeah, I agree. There's many, many similarities between Adventure Time and this, from the format of the 10-minute episodes to the sense of humor and kind of this combination of a wide-eyed, innocent look at the world with these deeper, darker things going on. Over the Garden Wall leans much more into the darker things, but no surprise to me at all that, that he worked on Adventure Time. It almost feels like developing sort of this brand of animation style and storytelling. Yes, it's certainly got elements of adolescent awkwardness that you get in Adventure Time. There's kind of random humor. A lot of unexpected things that kind of blip in and out of existence that you weren't expecting. There's there's oddness aplenty here. I, I thought the whole thing is a story that kind of feels like Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. I definitely think those are those are influences here, uh, whether consciously or subconsciously. And I would imagine, at least for Alice in Wonderland, definitely consciously an influence because there's an absurdism to some of the things that happen and kind of a strangeness and warping of like formal and comfortable things to just almost psychedelic weirdness now and then, or at least creepiness and intensity that uh, Alice in Wonderland makes me think of as well. Yeah, it... It certainly feels like it could have sprung in parts from the mind of like a Lewis Carroll type. Like you wonder what what kind of mushrooms he was eating. Agreed. Can we comfortably go into spoilers? I think we're going to have to face the fact that basically anything we say about this show is going to constitute a spoiler just because 
there's kind of a recurring use of red herrings and false conclusions in this show. And so, like, every episode, it kind of raises an expectation, and then a twist happens, and it dashes that expectation. So, yes, here be spoilers. All right. So, I think uh, Wizard of Oz is another apt comparison, one that hadn't occurred to me, but I think it's a good one, because like Wizard of Oz, we eventually learn that they're in some sort of, like, half-conscious, semi-conscious state uh, or at least Wirt is, where things from real life are sort of connecting to what's going on in this this fantastical world. It's not as explicit about that as The Wizard of Oz is, but there's definitely this this notion of a, like a long journey to find something or someone that is like a subconscious exploration, pulling things from the, the main character's real life, quote-unquote real life. Definitely. So, yes, similar to Wizard of Oz, it follows these two brothers, Wirt and Greg, as they are trying to find their way home. They're journeying kind of inexplicably through a forest that's called The Unknown, and this is sort of the Wonderland backdrop that we'll be exploring in this series. And when we first meet the brothers, they're wearing these odd costumes. Wirt is dressed kind of like a gnome, like a garden gnome with a pointed hat, and Greg has got a teapot on his head. And Greg has a pet frog that he carries throughout the show, and he's always trying to name it, giving it different silly names and then constantly renaming it. It's funny, we actually end up getting an origin story on the costumes by the end, but I kind of liked when it wasn't really explained, when it was... Just these are slightly odd-looking kids that reflect their slightly odd personalities. Yes, I I thought it was fitting as well. I, it doesn't really stand out in the world that they are in because shortly they encounter a variety of Wonderland-like inhabitants. Basically, this show doesn't reward or require a strict recap like we usually do because it boils down to a bunch of little surreal vignettes. It's like odd, creepy tableaus that you're in for ten minutes and then out of. That's true. Up until the last three or four episodes, where it attempts to bring the narrative to a cohesive framing and conclusion. Good point. It starts off with a setup that kind of gives you the main through line or thread that is like the myth arc of the show and then come back comes back to that myth arc heavily in the last few episodes but in between there's a little bit of creative meandering there's this book called save the cat it's a book about writing stories there's been several variations of it published but it was originally about screenwriting this guy Blake Snyder wrote it he introduced what is now called the Blake Snyder beat sheet. And it basically provides a structure for a story. And there's one bit of the bit in there that he calls the promise of the premise. So this is where you kind of know what the show is and you just kind of get to experience that premise for a bit before the actual narrative comes to a conclusion. And I would say, episodes two through maybe five or six i need to look at the exact list again 
constitute the promise of the premise for this series where we get an adventure of the episode with these boys encountering weird stuff as you said a vignette and then kind of escaping that vignette for you know five or six episodes in there yes the show is thick with flavor and maybe thin with substance at times but we will we will debate that Throughout, though, we are following these two brothers. I guess technically they're half-brothers. And I think that, for me, the strongest part of the show comes through in the development of their personalities and their relationship. We see that Wirt, the older brother, is introverted and he's nervous. And he's kind of serious about everything and often kind of gloomy. And on the other hand, Greg, the younger brother, is silly and gregarious and bold and indulges in the random humor aspect. Yeah, it plays with Greg, his kind of awareness of what's going on. Like sometimes it's naive and sometimes it's just he has no fear. And the kind of interplay between that is is kind of interesting. It's definitely a contrast to Wirt, who as you said, is being very earnest about everything that's going on. He's kind of got a emo high schooler vibe, does work, is, is what I thought of. In the first couple episodes, we get introduced to the overarching conflict when the brothers meet a woodsman voiced by Christopher Lloyd. And this aspect definitely feels borrowed from fairy tales, which is kind of something that comes up a lot is elements that seem like they could be taken from a Brothers Grimm story. So there's this woodsman, like Hansel and Gretel or something, whose job is to keep a cursed lantern lit by feeding it oil from these creepy trees called Edelwoods that are scattered throughout the forest. And the woodsman warns Wirt and Greg that they need to look out for the beast, which is this mysterious creature that... Christopher Lloyd is bound to serve. Also, early on, the brothers battle this scary wolf. This is all in episode one. And they assume that the wolf is the beast. But then the wolf coughs up this foreign object and is transformed back into a normal dog. And the woodsman warns them that the beast is still out there. This is part of a long-running, recurring use of red herrings in this show, like I touched on. Uh, As the series goes on, things that seem nefarious often turn out to be innocuous, and vice versa. I think it's also a good primer to the tone of the show and how it will verge from kind of lighthearted into very creepy in a moment's notice and then back again. Yes, you get a lot of these hairpin turns in terms of tone. But overall, as Dan was saying, promise of the premise, the middle episodes from like 2 to 6 or 7 are largely dedicated to steeping you in the autumnal flavor, kind of like a fine seasonal tea. Most of these episodes are largely what you would call episodic, like you could kind of watch one or another and the order wouldn't really matter. There are some serial elements, things that connect them, but it's pretty loose in this middle section. 
right? Like they they rescue a horse one episode, and then that horse hangs around for the next couple episodes. There's a couple things like that, but I agree overall the order of those is not particularly important. Right. The thrust of it is that each of these 10-minute episodes quickly introduces some folksy but off-putting vignette, like I said. Uh, in one, there's a harvest festival where there's a bunch of walking, talking pumpkin people celebrating. Or in another one, there's a school teacher who teaches a class full of animals who walk on their hind legs. And in every case, we are encouraged as viewers to kind of form an understanding of the scene in a certain way. But then as things unfold, that expectation is dashed. And there's some kind of twist and things are a little stranger than they seemed. Like, there's a gorilla who chases the teacher around, who turns out to be her fiancé trapped in a costume. Or the pumpkin people turn out to be skeletons on the inside. And the, the payoff of these twists is not always consistent. Some are more rewarding than others, or compelling than others. But it always seems to put a lot of import on revelations. I agree. I think they're a mixed bag. I think there's a little bit too much of it overall. It, the one where it really struck me was the pumpkin skeleton episode. We go from thinking they're evil to harmless back and forth about four times before the episode ends. And at some point, that starts to lose its impact. I, I do think there's a thematic purpose there as the characters are coming of age and these things that are simultaneously scary and normal are becoming a part of their everyday life and I think that is kind of a thematic undertone that kind of makes it work but just from a storytelling perspective agree it's a mixed bag sometimes it's it's really effective other times you could tell they were just trying to be clever that's interesting it does serve to highlight that Wirt is kind of constantly skeptical and Greg is largely very trusting and so when you're in these situations where things seem like they could go one way or the other it kind of reflects the difference in their characters and the clash of those two worldviews definitely no and in any case all these vignettes they encounter all these problems that the forest dwellers are facing the brothers help them to solve these problems they leave things better than they found them, and then they move on to the next tableau. The thread of the woodsman and the beast pursuing the brothers comprises the myth arc, so to speak. Gradually it comes to light that these creepy trees the woodsman has to cut and milk into his lantern are formed by people who get lost in the woods, like the brothers are. So this is kind of a looming threat that if they lose their way or give up hope in the end, they're going to be trapped in these spooky trees. Have you seen the movie Fargo? I have seen Fargo. I'm a fan. Yeah, Fargo's a great movie. I don't know how intentional, direct, and homage it was, but I very much got the vibes of putting the, the corpse in the meat grinder, or the wood chipper, that's what it is, in Fargo as he was grinding this wood and this black, almost blood-like sap comes pouring out. I thought that was one of the, the moments where 
the creepiness and weirdness really worked. Yes, it's certainly spooky. And you kind of get information about the true nature of these Adelwood trees in dribs and drabs throughout the different chapters. And it, it gets gradually more sinister, but from the start you can tell something is off about them. The brothers are joined on their journey by a talking bluebird named Beatrice. This bluebird, it turns out, um, cursed her family. Like she was mistreating a bird in the forest and so a spell got put on her family that now they're all bluebirds and she has to try to undo that. And this definitely to me seemed like something borrowed from a Brothers Grimm tale. I think specifically The Seven Ravens was one we read in German class that is about a family who all gets turned into birds because of the action of the sister. Uh, it, it seems folkloric. I really liked the Beatrice character. I thought she was well-written and well-voiced. She's kind of almost a third personality here. She's a little more like road-worn and grizzled than Wirt is, but you can tell that Wirt kind of connects with her. They think about things in a similar way, whereas Greg is kind of off in his own universe. The one thing I was hoping is that we would get a little more of her story and her backstory. Like I kind of assumed at first that she was making up why she had been turned into a bird. It's kind of played off like almost offhanded. And then as she became a more serious character, I was expecting to get a little more of that. We do obviously end up getting a twist from her where she's betraying the brothers by bringing them to their doom somewhere. Well, it doesn't end up being their doom. I was hoping we would get a little more of like why she was transformed. I guess we should take her story at face value. Yeah. So she is closer in age to Wirt. We get a lot of back and forth between the two of them. She's a little more streetwise, like you said. And she gives Wirt a hard time about how kind of wishy-washy he is. And he, he's slow to take action on things. And they get a lot of interplay. And I made a bullet point note here that... Well, I haven't said it yet, but I've watched this series like six times. I watch it pretty much every year around this time. And as I've watched it more, I've come to see why there's a lot of people who kind of ship Word and Beatrice. There's a lot of just back and forth between them. They trade barbs, basically. It's a little bit, a little bit confrontational of a relationship, and I feel like that tends to feed speculation online. There's definitely sparks and chemistry there in the, in the writing. There's a thing where he has a crush on a girl, and we don't meet her until the last couple of episodes. I was wondering if it was going to do a thing where like it was the same voice actor between the bird and the girl that he had a crush on. I think they ended up not going that route, making them distinctly different characters, but I kind of liked the idea that somehow like him getting comfortable with Beatrice and like building a relationship with her helps him build his confidence for this, this outside, uh, real-world crush that he has. That would have been interesting. It would have been uh, another parallel with Wizard of Oz, where you reuse the actors. Or like in Peter Pan, how there's a long-standing tradition that the actor who plays Captain Hook is also the children's father. Interesting. That's, that's pretty common. Back to the days of when the Barry was alive, and they staged the play, and you get it in Hook, and... Like Hans Conried is both in the Disney version. But I will say that Wirt Beatrice is not my OTP. 
uh, we will we will get there. Uh, an overarching thread for several episodes, as Dan mentioned, is that Beatrice is leading the brothers to a person that she says is going to help them. This is Adelaide, who's presented as kind of like a good witch, like Glinda or something. But it comes to light that Beatrice is actually betraying them because the witch has told her that she can break the curse that's on Beatrice and her family if Beatrice brings her children to be her servants. Beatrice has a change of heart. She has come to like the brothers, and so she changes her mind. She lets in the night air, which disintegrates Adelaide in a pretty creepy moment. Uh, Adelaide is John Cleese doing a creepy voice. Seemed notable. Seemed effective. Wait, that was John Cleese? I thought John Cleese was the uh, the millionaire who had the, the mansion. He was both, and it's like in consecutive episodes, so it's kind of surprising they used him twice. That's interesting, yeah. But now the one lead they thought they had no longer exists for the brothers, and Wirt starts to despair even more, and he becomes gradually more embittered and hopeless. Yeah, this is when things really start to take a turn for the the dark for Wirt and Greg. Yeah, we're heading into like the back four episodes of the ten at this point. One of the final vignette episodes that kind of stands on its own a little more separate from the myth arc might be my favorite. This is the one that I think most effectively pulls off the red herring twist. I think it's episode seven. And this is when the brothers seek shelter in a cottage where a pilgrim girl named Lorna hides them because she says her aunt is coming back. Auntie Whispers. This is a character voiced by Tim Curry, who has a long-standing history of voicing kind of off-putting characters. Uh, the clown in It is the villain in uh, Fern Gully, kind of the spirit of pollution. He's, he's got some interesting roles under his belt. Absolutely. I'm 100% with you on this being among the high points, if not the absolute high point of the series. Particularly the animation of Auntie Whispers is so creepy and weird. And Tim Curry's kind of understated voice, uh, it's it's really memorable. It's it's one of those moments where we get just enough of the character for it to like stick in your brain. It reminds me of in Avatar The Last Airbender, Ko the Face Stealer. It's just like this inspired creepy character that we get just enough of to be in your nightmares forever yes terrifying one-off character the way they reveal her is great and we're gonna try to paint a picture for you here using our words but you really have to see it auntie whispers has an enormous head and she just kind of steps in at the door she has a similar pilgrim outfit to the girl lorna um, but just a monstrous huge head it takes up like half the door frame. Yeah, big bulging eyes, a bulbous nose. And what she reminds me of is in the old school original Alice in Wonderland illustrations. There's a scene with the Duchess who has like a, a pig that she, it's like a half human baby, half pig that the Duchess is caring for. And it's a scene that you don't always get in adaptations. It was notably absent from the Disney version. Similarly, the Duchess has this huge, monstrous head 
that's just ponderous and off-puttingly large. And the features too. The the teeth are all like rotted and uneven and black and gray. And the eyes, the pupils are like these weird, almost Rorschach shapes that shift as she talks and moves around. Yeah, and it's not the same between the left and the right eye. They're like amorphous, ir- irregular ink smudges. Definitely menacing. But what's great about this episode, Auntie Whisper's dialogue has two meanings. Every single line that she says, the meaning of the line varies dependent on your understanding of the scene. Because when she comes in, we've had this preface that she's kind of like the wicked stepmother, forcing the girl to do things she doesn't want to do. We hear her command Lorna to constantly do house tasks like Cinderella. And she says that if Lorna stays busy, it will keep her from wickedness. And, and it, you know, it sounds super puritanical, like definitely something you would hear from a pilgrim in the 15 or 1600s. It's like you, you got to not give in to vice. You got to not be wicked. But then uh, Auntie Whispers goes to sleep and the brothers come out and they say that they're going to help Lorna finish her tasks quickly and then potentially help her escape from this seemingly sinister situation. And you get a moment where there's clear chemistry between Wirt and Lorna. And I gotta say, this is my OTP. They even get a little song together that I found charming. Yeah, and I knew that they were gonna do something with Lorna because this show had, thus far, always had a twist for what you thought, as we've already mentioned several times. And sure enough, they help her finish her tasks. So she's done with her work. And just as Auntie Whispers is stirring and discovers that something is amiss, Lorna transforms into this terrifying, soul-stealing demon in one of the scariest moments of the show. Possibly even scarier than Auntie Whispers. Yes, so it turns out that she has actually been possessed by this demonic force, and that if she's not being kept busy, the wickedness does take her over. And she comes to, like, devour their bones and steal their souls. And it's almost even darker. But luckily, the frog they've been carrying around has swallowed the bell that commands the demon. And so they jiggle the frog and are able to exercise her. So, yeah, as a standalone chapter, I especially liked this one. It delivers the characteristic twist... You get a really spooky moment, a couple really spooky moments, and you have the question of whether you should take things at face value or if you need to delve deeper to truly understand what's at hand. Yeah, I agree. This is one of the peaks of this uh, short season. In the wake of that, we kind of return to the main story arc for the rest of the chapters that we get. Wirt, at this point, is growing apathetic, ever more emo, and he goes to sleep under a tree. And at this point, well, Greg starts to blame himself for their situation, being lost in the woods. One of the creepy Edelwood trees starts growing over Wirt. Greg, who is just kind of noble throughout this whole thing and self-effacing, we'll talk more about this in 
uh, moment, but he really seems to be more just of a good person and willing to sacrifice, which is what he does here when he offers himself up to the beast in place of his brother. And Word is able to rouse himself just in time to chase after them at the end of, I think this is episode 8 of 10, and he dashes off after them into the woods and trips and falls into an icy pond. I thought it was real savvy writing how they had Wirt go to sleep as his kind of disengagement from the world. Not only is that like a classic fairy tale trope of when you fall asleep, you're kind of gone from this plane of existence, but it reminded me of teenagers, how they always want to be asleep. They don't want to be woken up by mom. It's like, oh, they get grumpy. They just want to take a nap about it. So I thought it worked. I thought that moment worked really well. Definitely. It's a good symbol of apathy that you <laughs> just wandering through the woods. Yeah, I'm going to sleep now. And it did feel like kind of legendary, like how I think Merlin is supposedly asleep under a tree. And like when when England needs him again, he'll awaken. Yeah, definitely. Echoes of that. Also, I think of Snow White and Sleeping Beauty where they obviously those are princesses, but where they go into bouts of sleep when they've been tarnished with whatever darkness plagues them and they need to be rescued. So when he plunges into this icy water, we get the penultimate chapter of the story, episode nine, where we get the origin explaining how the brothers actually came to be in this Wonderland environment. And it's probably the largest twist of the story. We find out that they really are just normal, seemingly contemporary kids, presumably from America somewhere. And that before all this started, they were celebrating Halloween, uh, which explains their weird costumes. It kind of explains their weird costumes. It doesn't really specifically explain why Wirt picked these clothing items, but it explains why they are in costumes to begin with. Interesting that you said contemporary. I wasn't paying super close attention to try and date it, but I feel like it could have been anything from today back to maybe the 1950s. It's kind of a vague late century America. Right. It reminded me in that sense of like the start of the Halloween tree, which is one of my favorite cartoon Halloween specials, where it, it kind of tries to be like Norman Rockwell or Ray Bradbury, just this timeless portrait of America. But he does have a cassette tape, so I would say it's got to be at least like 1980 onward. That's, That's the, one bit, yeah. the one bit of technology we see, but it, it could be up until today. It's interesting. I wonder if, if it's like... The, t- the creator imagined himself as a youth. A lot of times when you have things depicting teenage years, it's it's time from when the creator was a teenager, him or herself. That's insightful because definitely this episode is the, the peak teen moment. It is the teeniest where we get the, the most teenage angst brought to bear because we find out that in this lead up to their journey uh, back in the real world Wirt was attempting to woo his crush a girl named Sarah by making her a tape recording of what he says is poetry and clarinet 
and we don't actually get to hear the tape, but I can imagine what's on there. It made me think of in How I Met Your Mother. Sometime around the second season, we get a origin story of how the Barney character, played by Neil Patrick Harris, how he became a womanizer, and we we see that he uh, was like kind of the opposite of his initial personality, and he got dumped by a girl, and then he made this ridiculously hokey and emotional videotape to try and win her back, and that's what I was thinking of as this was happening. Is it was like that story again, and it made me wonder. He the word actually has some really good monologues and turns of phrase that you know that he's not a, like a sham. He actually has sort of a poet's soul to him. But on the other hand, he's a 15-year-old, like, writing love poetry and playing clarinet. You just know that it's not good. You know that it's going to make you cringe. But I really wish we could have heard it. Although maybe it's better we didn't, so it can just live in our imagination as good and awful as it possibly could be. Yeah, throughout the show, Wirt has got these little soliloquies he gives where he's like, I'm a boat bound on a ceaseless journey toward a dark horizon. That sort of thing. Just very bleak, flowery statements. But in this flashback scene, he chickens out at the last moment. There's a little more twists and turns to it, but the the essence of it is that he chickens out, uh, the brothers run off, and as part of this escape, as they're running away, they hop over a fence in a cemetery, actually. You might call it a garden wall. And they hop over this fence, behind which are some train tracks. And as a train comes, they fall down an embankment and are knocked unconscious. And that's how they ended up in the unknown. It's all been a kind of a Wizard of Oz-style bonk-on-the-head fever dream. A near-death hallucination, almost. The one thing, going back to the teen episode, the, the moments before... They hop over the garden wall. I thought this is something that could have been terrible, but was actually pretty well done. I just liked the uh, the way that the characters, the teen characters that we meet over the course of those 10 minutes are not like cartoonishly annoying. They actually kind of feel like normal people and they're generally pretty nice. Jason Funderburker, which is just a phenomenal name, by the way. I love it when characters have good names and it's tough to top Jason Funderburker. But he's a little odd. Otherwise, <laughs> he's just a, they're all normal teens. And, and I, I also wanted to shout out that I was really glad they included that episode because to me, the quintessential fall experience is going to a high school football game. And that's where one of the climactic moment happens uh, is at a, a football game. And there's some talk of marching band and school mascots. And I was really glad there was that was there. It definitely made this feel even more fall to me. I knew you would appreciate that aspect. Strong featuring of the marching band in this miniseries because Wirt plays the clarinet. I guess he's not officially part of the marching band yet, but he's considering it. And the girl he has a crush on <laughs> serves as the mascot. And so, yes, there's this pivotal confrontation at the football game while the marching band is going on. And I agree that this chapter... The first time I watched the miniseries, this, like, blew my mind and really enhanced my appreciation for the show as a whole. I think not having this explanation for what's going on would diminish it in my mind. It would be a very different show, for sure. It would just be this sort of 
fantasy with coming of age undertones, but without framing it in an actual real life experience and like tying it to a pseudo reality. I also wanted to say that we've heard this story of the events of this night retold from Wart's point of view during his adventures. But seeing it ourselves, we realized that he was perceiving a lot of it incorrectly. And it's just kind of a, another example of the trademark misunderstandings that keep popping up. I also think it really amplifies the theme of the show, or one of the themes of the show, which is how our perceptions about like what is scary and bad and evil as opposed to comfortable and easily conquered is very wrong repeatedly and how like part of growing up is learning to parse out those things yourself it was it it worked really well in conjunction with that it was almost like let's do the same type of storytelling structure that we do in the fantasy land but let's do it in a contemporary setting without fantasy elements to it and i think the greatest example of Wirt having misperceived something is this character, Jason Funderburker, who is his romantic rival. This other guy who's interested in the same girl that Wirt has a crush on. And we've heard his name previously in the fantasy sequences, and Wirt describes him as really having his act together and being the whole package. <laughs> And then we finally see him and hear him, and he's this weirdo <laughs> who has a like a frog voice. <laughs> he's super doofy. Yeah, that was that was pretty funny. I think the first thing we hear him say is, "Hey, Sarah, <laughs> are you ready to go?" And just really great, another revelation of truth moment. But then we're here at chapter 10, the final act, and it's plunged back into the fantasy realm one last time. Kind of knowing what we know now, we're going to see the story brought to a close. Greg has gone off with the beast, and so Wirt and the woodsmen team up to go confront the beast. And this is where the woodsman finally grasps the nature of the Edelwood trees. He finds out that they're made of the lost souls. And Greg is able to piece together that the reason the lantern has got to stay lit is actually because it's what's keeping this beast alive. And we haven't really talked about what the beast is. He's like this scary spirit of the woods who has antlers and a deep operatic voice. Uh, in German class, we learned a poem about this thing called the Erlkönig, which is like this creepy spirit who prowls the woods trying to like lead children astray. And so that is what I associated the beast with. To, to me, this is the Erlkönig. He's always depicted by these two glowing eyes. There is a moment when, I don't know if it's lightning or the lantern, like something flashes and we get like a one second look at him. And I wanted to go back and kind of freeze frame it and see how he's actually depicted in the light. I think I looked at one point because yes, at this point, Wirt convinces the woodsman to douse the lantern and it extinguishes 
the beast. But just before it does, we get like a one frame subliminal flash of what it really looks like. It gets caught in a beam of the light. I think I looked it up at one point, what the frame looks like, but it's almost more effective leaving it to your imagination. But what you see is like twisted flesh. It's like muscle fibers with the skin ripped away or like a bunch of little creatures bound together. Just kind of the idea that it's made up of a bunch of gross stuff. Kind of like at the end of Nightmare Before Christmas when the boogeyman gets his skin ripped away. I agree it works well as just a fleeting impression where you, you see enough to know that it's this creepy, disfigured, ugly mass of not quite humanness. So now the threat of the beast is gone and the brothers are able to return home, quote unquote. This is when Wirt comes to from his coma and he's back in the real world. They like dug the brothers out of the pond that they fell into and they're recouping in a hospital ward. And similar to the end of Wizard of Oz, it's like everybody is gathered around waiting for them to recover. And we get kind of a no place like home moment. So Wirt finally talks to his crush Sarah, they make plans to hang out later, uh, but uh, Wirt says they can probably work their way up to listening to the weird tape that he made. There's this moment where it looks like he's going to kind of do his sort of whimpering thing again, but then he boldly asks her out. It's kind of like the payoff on his emotional growth of the series of building up that confidence. That's right, and he finally names Greg's frog, and he names it Jason Funderburker. I thought they were going to name it The Beast after all was said and done. That was my prediction. Oh, interesting. But Jason Funderburker is such a good name, I can't begrudge it. Also interesting, ultimately they leave it kind of ambiguous how real the unknown is as a place, which is also interesting to consider uh, in comparison to The Wizard of Oz, because in the movie, it's kind of very much that Oz was all a dream state and doesn't really exist. But in the books, it's like a very real place. And Dorothy goes back and forth all the time, and there's like 30 books. So here it seems like it's kind of in the middle, because yes, they come to from their fever state, but in the very final moments of the show, we see these quick scenes of the inhabitants having benefited from Wirt and Greg's actions. We see like each little group of people that they helped in each of the standalone episodes and better off than when the brothers found them. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of this sequence because we also get a scene of the frog playing piano and singing. And some of the lyrics he says are about how if dreams can't come true, then why not pretend? And I wonder, are we supposed to accept that these things quote-unquote really happened or I don't know it's like a metafictional moment because obviously the entire thing every part of it didn't happen even the stuff in the real world is a, a fictional tv series but yeah it made me think of where the wild things are the book where he sails away I forget exactly what the wording is but week over week and into a year or something along those lines and then he's kind of in this place and then he returns back and it's clear that it was in his head, but also was it really in his head? Because it, to me, it's almost like a reflection of 
the perception of children and the way that reality and fantasy are so intermingled in the perception of children and how a lot of great fairy tales and children stories, especially ones that are kind of spooky, play on that ambiguity, but just how it can kind of be both at the same time and how they're kind of intermingled. And that's kind of how I read it, is that it was supposed to be both real and not real. Like, they were kind of intertwined. Yeah, actually, another piece of media that this reminds me of is Labyrinth by Jim Henson, which acknowledges its debt to the works of Maurice Sendak, who wrote Where the Wild Things Are. So here on here on The Goods, we follow kind of a roadmap, and now is the time where we explore the things we liked about this show, the good things, as it were. The first that I wanted to share was I really found the brothers' personalities and the relationship between them to be appealing and personally resonate with me. Uh, because yes, there's the fall theme of this show that made it appropriate to rewatch it this time of year or to share with Dan for the first time. But what has kept me coming back time after time is that the dynamic between Wirt and Greg reminds me a lot of my relationship with my own brother. I, I know Dan has got a bumper crop of brothers. I have one brother who's seven years younger than I am, but I wanted to see if the brotherhood themes resonated with you as well, Dan. I'm not sure my siblings have ever been described as a bumper crop before, but that kind of works. I am the oldest of six, including four brothers, so I'm the oldest of five boys. I did think that that theme worked overall in this show. I didn't personally resonate with it quite as much, but I agree that that, that theme is is explored well, and that's one of the strengths, especially towards the end of the show when we see Greg and Wirt sort of rubbing off on each other in different ways. You know, Greg, you described him as the better person, but he's also is just kind of aimless on his own. Like he just, he, he doesn't have, seem to have any objectives with what he's doing most of the time. He's just kind of a cloud, you know, uh, his head's in the clouds, at least floating along. And Wirt, on the other hand, is, seems like incapable of just going with the flow and being in the moment again, except for a few exceptions towards the end, they start to like lean on each other and the strengths of each other. This is when Wirt goes to sleep and Greg is going to be the new leader and he has to learn how to lead. And he thinks a lot about how Wirt is a leader and the way that that builds, especially towards the end. And you can really see kind of the affection and the similarity as well as the distance between them. Definitely well fleshed out characters. Definitely a strong point for the writing on the more serious end. Nice. Well, I, I have got to say that this pair of siblings reminds me of my relationship with my own brother more than any other representation I've seen in film or really any other story. I don't know, just something about it. The age range seems about right. Uh, we've got Wirt, who's dark and brooding, and the brother, who's got this big head and <laughs> is easygoing. Physical big head. Yes, Yes, not you know not as disgustingly large as Anti Whispers, but he's top heavy, and I just I saw a lot of parallels between myself and my own brother and the brothers in this this series. I especially see a lot of myself in Wirt, and these aren't necessarily the most positive traits. Uh, some some are, I guess. He plays clarinet in the marching band, and he writes poetry, and he's very much in his own head. And these are all things that I see in myself. 
and the way that Wirt kind of views his own serious nature as making him the good brother, and he kind of is critical of Greg's silliness and his wandering nature, as you said, how he's kind of aimless and floats around like a feather, that that's, that's bad, and that's leading the brothers astray in Wirt's mind. I can kind of see that in my relationship with my own brother, and it's kind of infuriating seeing it from the outside. At least to me as a viewer, it seems like Greg is the one with his heart in the right place most of the time. And even if he is aimless, he does seem to possess a courage and a confidence. Just that it's the things that Greg decides that's improving the lives of those around them. And I just kind of want to shake Wirt for being so negative all the time and tell him to be a better role model for his little brother. But every time I feel that, I also feel a big oof, like I'm looking in a mirror at myself. Uh, there's this one really poignant line uh, before Wirt heads off to confront the beast and get Greg back that a member of Beatrice's family says, you won't be any good to your brother dead. And Wirt says, I was never any good to him alive. And that that really hit hard for me. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's really compelling. Thanks for sharing all that. I I interpreted some of their differences as much the age difference and like the, the awareness difference and how word is clearly thrown off by being in a world that's somewhat nonsensical and trying to like bring sense to it. Whereas Greg still in his kind of childlike state is okay with things not making perfect sense because when you're a kid, the world doesn't make perfect sense and there's not much ability to make sense of all of the grown up things that are happening. Whereas Wirt is trying to, to do that throughout the show. So I, I definitely think the personality stuff is there too, but I think it's also there thematically on how Wirt is in this phase where he's like approaching adulthood, and that is kind of how it manifests itself in the unknown. I think that's very valid, and also a theme that gets explored a lot in fairy tales. You know, like in Little Red Riding Hood, the Red Hood, the Maidenhood the traveling through the woods is kind of a symbol of adolescence and coming into adulthood and the unknown aspect of that and how there's there's wolves prowling out there kind of the the perils of adolescence another thing that this show does that i i really admire on that front is it treats the coming of age as like a almost a trauma it's like a loss of something you didn't really know you had that you can't get back in touch with it's almost like a death in some ways when you exit childhood. I thought that that theme worked really well. I tend to like it when shows kind of take coming of age from that angle on like a almost mythic sort of level. Um, the Wonder Years, the show from the late 80s, early 90s, it's famous for its, you know, girl next door romance and sentimental voiceover, but it actually has a lot of depth similarly about how coming of age is entering adulthood, exiting childhood, really does feel like a loss. It feels like something is being forcibly stolen from you. And kind of in retrospect, again, it it, it feels like a, a death of a younger self. So I thought that that theme worked pretty well consistently throughout. For sure. The next good thing I wanted to touch on is kind of a one-two punch. It's the art design and the soundtrack. And we could look at both of these things separately, but it's kind of a, a parcel. They come as a package. 
the show features a whole lot of old school artistic influences, things in the public domain, sort of folk art. These range from things as early as like the pilgrims to old postcards. Like I found a, a cracked article or similar that is just all about these like vintage Halloween postcards that would be sent in like the very end of the 1800s into the early 1900s with a lot of the imagery that we see reflected in this show. There's like vegetable people and cats walking on their hind legs and just all of these visual elements that carry over. You also see a lot of influence from like 1930s Fleischer cartoons, things like Betty Boop, and uh, specifically there's a short by Ub Iwerks called Jack Frost, where I recognized a lot of similar beats and characters, like a personification of the winter wind and talking animals and, and things of that variety. I feel like if you were an old school animation junkie, you could be dissecting references in this for years and years. There's definitely a, several that I picked up on. The One of the barmaids really struck me as a Betty Boop knockoff in the way that she sort of talked and looked. And there were a couple of others I picked up. There was like a, a dancing segment that reminded me a little bit of the skeleton dance. And there's definitely a lot going there. It pulls from a lot of kind of early century things and themes and iconic settings. There's the kind of the Mississippi riverboat episode where we have the frogs. There's the the schoolhouse episode reminded me of a lot of children's books from the early and mid-century. I, I read a lot of those old books to my daughters. I actually got, I thought of uh, Richard Scarry or Richard Scary. I'm not sure how you actually pronounce it. The way in that school episode that there are all these different animals that are kind of cartoonishly cheerful people personified made me think of that and the fact that he's blending all of these different aesthetics and ideas into one thing that feels pretty seamless is really cool yeah i can definitely see the busy town influence as well potentially and music is similar in that it's got all these different styles of vintage musical influences uh, you've got some ragtime piano and some Dixieland jazz and various choral arrangements of things. And I think my single favorite musical track is this tune that plays in episode two when they go to Pottsfield, which is the town populated by pumpkin people. They're kind of dancing around a maypole, singing this song. It blends like what I'm pretty sure is a hurdy-gurdy, which is this medieval instrument that it's like a, a fiddle with a crank on it. And instead of like, you know, using a bow like on a violin, you turn this crank and it makes a similar string instrument sound, but it's a droning noise. So it's like a stringed bagpipe type sound. And on top of this hurdy-gurdy drone, they're doing solfege singing. I I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it's, you know, it's the kind of singing where you sing fa la la fa la to di so, or, you know, you get, you know, do re mi, like Sound of Music. I definitely was cranking that one a few times before I started the podcast today. As far as town titled songs go, it's not quite Needville, but it's a pretty good one. We might have to do a Lorax 2012 episode if we <laughs> make it to the end of this one. 
Um, did any other music tracks stick out to you? It's interesting. We spent <laughs> almost an hour talking about the story elements, the character elements, the narrative elements. When really, if you were going to take away one thing from this, I really think it's the art and the music to a slightly lesser extent. I think that's like the dominant, really interesting thing here. One thing on the art, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, but the emphasis on painting-like backgrounds really makes it stand out from some of the other animated shows that I've seen. Like, it really feels like they were trying to make these settings feel like classic paintings. As far as the music goes, I felt like there was a period towards the middle where it almost leaned too much on the music, and so it started to lose its magic of the, the music popping out because it was happening like two times an episode. But for me, the one that really stuck out was Potatoes and Molasses. I thought that that was just a really good moment. If your enjoyment of the show is when you hit the wavelength just right, you really enjoy it. For me, the Potatoes and Molasses song was when I hit its wavelength for sure. And I would say that the show recognizes Potatoes and Molasses as an important moment because when things get more serious and grim at the end of the story, we get a Latin version of a, a chorus singing Potatoes and Molasses in Latin. Really? To kind of mark I did not Greg's, recognize that. I only noticed it this time. But it's like <laughs> as Greg is being led away by the beast, we get this like half sinister but kind of like sacred and holy arrangement of potatoes and molasses because it's kind of, I guess, the Greg leitmotif. I was wondering if we were supposed to read potatoes and molasses to be Wirt and Greg respectively, but Wirt's issue isn't that he's bland. It's that he's he's facing these different these different difficulties and he's kind of more jaded and dark and emo, as you said. So I don't know... <laughs> if that's quite exactly the parallel, but that is something that occurred to me. Anytime there was like a dichotomy, I was wondering if it was uh, supposed to be reflecting the brothers to some extent. Oh, wow, you're blowing my mind. I All the times I've watched it, I've never thought about it that way. I don't think it quite works, but yeah. But I mean, it could be the whole um, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's like you need the saccharine sweetness of Disney and childhood to get you through the hard times. Right, you need your, your Greg to survive your work. If you don't like me at my work, you don't deserve me at my Greg. A uh, couple other quick things that I liked. Obviously, it's it's Halloween related. Uh, more specifically, it's very tied into the time that it aired, the first week of November. It's like the weird quick turnaround between spooky season of Halloween and the rest of the holiday season. It had that great late fall, early winter snow segment where the snow almost looks like ash. It almost looks like it's just kind of drifting horizontally in the air. That made me think of November. That's peak November snow right there. Right. It's like the final two episodes of the show, the snow starts coming in. It's like winter is arriving when things are getting serious. I also found it fulfilling them helping the townsfolk and then later seeing the aftermath of what they did. It reminded me of the end credits in Majora's Mask, the Zelda game from 2000. It's just like, oh, we did that. Uh, in this case, they did that, I guess. But just that they were helpful and it had a payoff and they helped strengthen a community. 
feels satisfying. One of the cadence of the show is that they, the characters kind of stumble into this, this scene, this vignette we've been calling it, and they sort of inadvertently help solve some problem each time. And I agreed that it was kind of cool seeing that all tied up back together at the end and seeing that, yeah, even when we think we're not doing a lot, we actually are doing a lot. So as we took this journey together, Dan, what were some pitfalls that you noticed? What were some things not so good about Over the Garden Wall? Well, to me, the, the thing that I faced the most difficulty with connecting the show was the pace of the show. Ten minute episodes, very short, only ten of them. I feel like this show would have worked better if it wasn't so rushed to get through each story. Like, if they had been 20-minute episodes, I think the overall effect of the show might have been a lot more for me. And I know that this is part of the genre, like the Adventure Time type genre. Oh, it's it's like a whiff of a story and then you're gone. But for something that's it's weightier than Adventure Time, I feel like it suffered from being so short. On the other hand... It's hard to know, would the show have worn out its welcome if it had been any longer than it was? Because it's around just enough for you to enjoy it before it gets old, before it really starts to feel too humdrum and repetitive. So I was really pondering that as it went along, but I do think overall it just feels underdeveloped when it's only 10 minutes. Yeah, it's like as soon as you're in, you're suddenly out. You, right. You, you settle into appreciating what you're experiencing and then it's over. You do get used to it as it goes along. Like the first episode when it ended, I could I was like how is it already over and it had felt like it was just starting to build up. Towards the end I got a little bit more used to it. I I knew that it was going to be shorter and it felt a little more comfortable to me, but I, again, I just wanted a little more. I wanted a little slower pace. I wanted a little more development. I wanted a little more atmosphere. It's, it it could have been a very atmospheric show and it was to the extent that 10 10 minute episodes could be but i wanted a little more of that one problem i ran into is some pitfalls common to random humor shows that use a lot of what i would think of as random humor and when you say random humor in this case you mean they say a silly thing that really has no relationship to what's going on i guess so yeah the way that they like greg throwing out a bunch of random names for the frog. But I mean, up to and including elements of the story, like the rampaging gorilla, or I don't know, there's just a lot of things that happen in this show and not a lot of context stringing them together, which could be part of just the fantasy dream sequence element. Uh, I mean, you could be just as critical about Alice in Wonderland. It's like, why is there... A dodo leading a caucus race. It just is. Right. But I think you're on to something that it doesn't quite verge into that level of satisfying surrealism. It's just kind of things happening sometimes. I think the humor in particular is problematic for, for me. I, I didn't laugh maybe once even at Greg being silly. I did laugh a few times, but it was mostly for Wirt doing something that was kind of not matching his own expectation. I actually ended up thinking Wirt was kind of funnier than Greg. Like when Wirt, he revealed his dark secrets and it was that he writes poetry, or he reads himself poetry and has a crush on a girl. And you're like, that's it? That made me laugh a little bit. But anytime it was just Greg being silly, oh, look, the plant is growing inside of him too. 
No, I just ate leaves. Like that that didn't work for me quite oh, as much. Oh, I actually I did laugh at that part. Oh, you did like that <laughs> That's one. That's probably okay. my one. <laughs> no, I was just eating leaves. <laughs> that, that was probably my my biggest Greg laugh. And I'm glad that you brought in the uh, Wurtz dark secret revelation because that that's a pretty good uh, driving force behind your character. Just you're a nerdy guy who has a crush, and that's what's driving you to be this mysterious wanderer. That also resonated with me. One of the critical reviews that I read of the show said that it was a little too intent on its own folksiness. I, I kind of get a little of that. I mean, would you think that that was valid? Yeah, that's kind of in line with what I was saying about the music, how they use it so much, it, it loses its magic a little bit. It leans so hard into its stylistic elements that, it, again, it's kind of the main takeaway from it. Like, if you enjoy that, you're probably going to like this. But if you are just kind of not engaged in it, then it is going to feel like it kind of dips too much into it. I can definitely see that as a point. I will say I did like it, though. I, I never felt like it exceeded its folksiness, that it went too far in it. I mean, I, I would have to watch it again to say that for sure, but I, I didn't remember ever really thinking that. Well, that's good. I, I was very curious to hear how somebody who had never experienced it before and maybe didn't have the close personal connection that I feel watching the brothers would think about the stylistic choices. Yeah, I thought it overall worked really well, and I can see why this has become kind of a touchstone. I do think that I could see this show being your favorite show of all time if you were like of a certain age and a certain mindset when you saw it. Because if you enjoy the sort of brisk pace, the very random humor, as you call it, uh, the silliness of Greg, but also like are, you know, just starting to enter older adolescence yourself, then... I could see this really resonating with you, with you. For me, I felt like I was a little too old for it to be like a strong emotional connection, but I definitely can see how this is something that would be really influential to you at the right phase because it does a lot of things in a really unique and evocative way. It brings in lots of influences that you don't see quite so explicitly reflected in modern animation and makes it flavorful and approachable and artful even like silly things like that the highwayman at one of the places they stop he's got this kind of gruff voice and then he gets like a 10 second 15 second goofy dance from like a fisheye lens that was a moment where i was like just enraptured i was on its wavelength and it just felt like a lot of things coming together in this very memorable evocative piece of art and that was like one of the more lighthearted ones. There were some serious moments too where I kind of felt that. And yeah, I, I really admired it overall. Yeah, I was not going to jump back to it, but since you called out the Highwayman moment, that stuck out to me as another old school animation reference. It really seemed to be calling back to the Minnie the Moocher episode of Betty Boop where Cab Calloway, the band leader, is in it. And he plays a dancing walrus and they like rotoscoped his dance moves and it looks a lot like that with like the limbs twisting around and just moving in a really fluid mysterious way that's really cool yeah i, I figured it was an allusion to something and and like dan said there's a lot of that here so if you're a certain age this is going to appeal if you're into older art styles and especially older animation I feel like this is really going to be up your alley. 
And if you if you like shows that have a slightly ethereal, dreamlike element to them, but are not completely in fairy tale land, if that balancing of tones is appealing to you, I definitely think that this is something that you could connect to. So shall we render a verdict? Sure, let, let's go for it. You're our guest today. I, I offered up the pick. And so let's hear from you first, Dan. Is it good? So we have an eight-point scale of goodness that we've been using. I kind of threw it on Brian in the first episode, like right as we were starting recording. I was like, here's our grading scale we're going to use. And I kind of invented it myself in 10 minutes. We might have to revisit some of this, Brian, because I'm not sure the... <laughs> The yeah. names of the levels are... I would I would say I kind of want to dissect it a little bit and kind of have since the first part. But what I've what I've thought of it as so far is just a kind of a number value out of eight. If you, sure. If you want to be callous and just completely not whimsical, if you're a Wirt and not a Greg, think of it as a number value out of eight. So for me, this show has so much going for it. Also has a couple of elements and moments that failed to make it really resonate and part of that is just me seeing it when i saw it in my phase of life so i'm going to land on very good i think it verges into exceptionally good now and then like i think the the sequence with what is it auntie whispers or whatever her name is that that was really memorable for me i i think if you average everything out it comes to very good with the potential to be exceptionally good for the right audience i'm glad you enjoyed it for me, it's going to land at exceptionally good, fairly solidly, so a 7 out of 8. A big part of that for me is the depiction of the sibling relationship, which reminds me a lot of my own. I think if it didn't have that, it would suffer a little bit, but not too much. I mean, I'm big into old school animation and American history and older American pop culture, so... I'm certainly feeling the vibe of the music choices, the art influences that you don't see everywhere. This miniseries has a vibe that feels unique, and I definitely enjoy it. Yeah, it's its, its own really interesting creation. I wanted to just throw in a, a final thought here, which is that I thought Over the Garden Wall worked well as a goods selection because it is fairly short. It's a manageable length, about 100 minutes if you cut off the start and end credits, which are minimal anyway. But you can kind of think of it as a stand-in for another thing that I would want Dan to watch, which is Gravity Falls. There are definitely similarities between Over the Garden Wall and Gravity Falls and why they both appeal to me so much. I won't dive into it too much here, other than to say that they're both spooky and they both have a lot of personal resonance with me. Uh, Gravity Falls is about kids who, for their summer vacations, they go to visit their grandfather in the Pacific Northwest. And he operates this tourist trap curio shop called the Mystery Shack. And so it's got like X-Files references and, you know, a boy who is a aspiring paranormal investigator. And sure enough, when I was a child, we would always vacation out at my grandfather's house in the Pacific Northwest and hit up all the paranormal tourist traps. If there's ever been a TV show that resonates with me, feels like it was targeted specifically to appeal to me, and that calls to mind my childhood, it's Gravity Falls. 
but close second is Over the Garden Wall, just because of this relationship between the brothers and how much it reminds me of my relationship with my brother. This has a much more manageable runtime, and so that's why I picked it. Very cool. Thank you for sharing it with me. I, uh, it's a little different from our movies that we've been watching, but I got a lot out of this. I got a, a real kick out of something that was a little different. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad I could bring it to your attention. Do you have any parting thoughts for us today? Well, I'm in the throes of autumn, and uh, one thing I've been slowly, very slowly watching with my wife for the first time ever is Twin Peaks. Some things here made me think of some of the things in Twin Peaks, which, have you seen Twin Peaks? I've watched some of Twin Peaks. I've had it recommended to me many, many times. What I have watched, I found almost too strange to embrace, but I am slowly going through it. That's kind of what made me think of this, is there are moments here when like, the nature of the reality is not quite clear, and Twin Peaks makes me think of that. Twin Peaks also feels vaguely autumnal with kind of a exaggerated reality with some teenage angst in it, so... Obviously, extremely different media, but that's something that I've been uh, starting to watch myself. Well, since you mentioned it, uh, Gravity Falls also owes a lot to Twin Peaks. And in the final episode, when the siblings in Gravity Falls go home, the bus driver who comes to pick them up is Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks. Oh, that's fun. And... As he's driving away, he says something like, now leaving the town of Gravity Falls, or something. And at the start of Twin Peaks, he drives in and says, now entering the town of Twin Peaks. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. It's kind of a shared universe of creepy Pacific Northwest happenings, or just just whatever forest you happen to be in in the fall. So, what's up next on our docket, Dan? Can you give us a little taste of what lies on the horizon? Sure. So we're still in the throes of autumn. It feels a little repetitive to double dip into childhood animation around a fall theme, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm going to go even more classic. I'm going to ask you to watch It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, the seminal autumn special. It's a lot shorter than the other stuff we've been watching, but I think it'll give us some to talk about. And I have a very particular relationship with fall and in some different and similar ways a very specific relationship with pumpkins and rituals around pumpkins and i have some reminiscences that i want to partake in and i will be sharing with you next week i am a pumpkin connoisseur as well a gourd aficionado and i look forward to discussing the topic with you all right well this has been The Goods. Thank you very much, Brian, for sharing Over the Garden Wall with me. Oh, thank you, Dan, for watching it. It's been fun talking about it. It's been part of my life for the last six years. I'm glad to bring it to your attention, and thank you all for listening. Thanks again for listening. I want to let listeners know that we got a website. If you go to thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, it's a little hub where you can find all the places our podcast is hosted. We also have an email address now. It is pod at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. So if you have any feedback for us, please send us an email. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash goodsfilm. You can find us there. We'll be uh, posting our episodes on social media and all the podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, 
So uh, hope you'll join us there. Join us next time on The Goods.